Hi there, and welcome to my podcast, Emotions with Emily. Today, we are going to be covering the topic of cultural, linguistic, and neurodiversity as it relates to social-emotional learning. As you know, um, we don't just talk about social-emotional learning, we also practice it too. So as we do every episode, we're going to start this episode with a mindful moment. So please join with me, um, and we will get started. Today's mindful moment is going to be on gratitude. I am grateful for this opportunity to share this podcast with you, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my knowledge of social-emotional learning with you all. So as we begin today, please get to yourself to a comfortable seated position. Uh, feel yourself grounded through your seat. And once you're settled, close your eyes, or if you'd feel more comfortable, lower your gaze. This guided meditation script will help you feel more gratitude. As we start, pay attention to your breath by taking mindful breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth. As you breathe in, count to four. And as you breathe out, count to four. As you're breathing, I want you to start to think about how lucky you are. What in this moment are you grateful for? Take time as you continue to breathe in for four and out for four to think of three things that you're grateful for. Now, as you inhale, Send extra gratitude for these things. If your mind starts to wander, do not worry. Simply be a, an observer of your thoughts without judgment. Then, if you can, bring your attention back to your breath and the things you're grateful for. Keep breathing in for four and out for four. All you have to do right now is breathe and drench yourself in your gratitude. Hopefully you'll notice how practicing mindfulness and gratitude can help you feel better, perhaps even happy. Do one last breath in for four and one last breath out for four. And when you're ready, open your eyes and take this minute to feel the feeling of gratitude and hopefully carry this with you for the rest of your day. Okay, I know I'm feeling better. I hope you all are too. I am glad that even though we have limited time with one another, we take those two to three minutes uh, to do our mindful moment. I think it really sets us up in a good headspace to think um, as deeply as we can about the important issues of social emotional learning. So once again, welcome to Emotions with Emily. And as we said, today's podcast is on the cultural, linguistic, and neurodiversity and how it relates to social-emotional learning. We're going to begin today, as we always do, with a quick review of the research. 
because I believe it'll give us the theoretical framework we need to figure out how these issues play out in education. Um, it might get a little hectic when we're talking about cognition and neuroscience and how the brain is and the different processes of the brain, but we're going to stick with it because I think once we get to the strategies, it's really going to make a lot of sense once we know where the research came from. The first article I'd like to summarize for us today is called Culture Wires the Brain, a Cognitive Neuroscience Perspective. This article was written 10 years ago in 2010, but really will give us a good foundation today while we're talking about neurodiversity, differences in the brain, as well as linguistic diversity. It's a good match of the both, um, of both of those aspects. So this article is pretty dense, but let me just sum it up for you. It is easiest to understand when they're explaining how it makes sense that our brain would change based on different experiences that we have. Um, they even go as far as to say as experiences sculpt both our brain and our behavior. And this makes sense if we consider the examples they gave in the article. Um, Dennis Park and Chai Mo Hung um, explained to us that Taxi drivers, they studied the brains of taxi drivers, and uh, this was before Google Maps was quite as popular. So you can imagine that taxi drivers, they knew all the city roads and shortcuts and you know which roads to take when based on the time and the traffic. And it makes sense to think that they had a larger amount of gray matter in their brain, right? They used their brain more than most of us, and so they had a larger mass. Um, the same was true with post office workers who spent, you know, thousands of hours um, going over the post office codes and um, they said digits and alpha numbers. And so that makes sense, too. Like, of course, their brain would be stronger in that area than mine was. Um, one more example they gave was jugglers. Um, the I guess the brain power it takes to manage juggling impacted the, the brains of those that they studied. Um, again, mostly it's getting bigger or thicker. That's always better. So that makes sense to me, right? If we were, you know, lifting weights or doing push-ups, our arms would be stronger and bigger than people who aren't. If we're using different parts of our brains, our brains are stronger and thicker than people who aren't using those parts of the brain. So that makes sense from the neurodiversity perspective. Um, if, but if we now want to loop in the linguistic perspective, the same article, Cultural Wires in the Brain, researched the different brain ca uh, compositions of Chinese speakers and non-Chinese speakers. And what they determined was that the Chinese speakers had a more um, activation, I think is the word they used, in one area of their brain. It wasn't an area I was specifically um, familiar with. Um, it, the parietal areas, I believe that's one of the lobes. Um, the, in my opinion, the exact area of the brain isn't as important as the concept of the speaking the Chinese language made an area of the brain stronger and um, more activated. He went on to say that this is probably because the Chinese language is more um, intricate and more, um, I wouldn't say advanced, but definitely requires more brain um, areas. They, 
and that makes sense to me too, right? The same way as doing the push-ups or, you know, the juggling of the taxi drivers. The article did go on to ask us um, as critical thinkers, is it just speaking the Chinese or is it also partly the um, diet or genetics that would come with being a Chinese speaker? I don't know that we will ever know. Um, but I think, again, as we relate it to our podcast, Emotions with Emily, we can see that the point is, is that working different areas of our brain will make them stronger, whether that's speaking Chinese, driving a taxi, or juggling. This is amazing because that means we can build the different areas of the brain. We can cultivate knowledge, and this will play out in our in our efforts with students, especially when we're trying to um, be equitable and equitable and uh, you know um, educate all and make sure that um, education can be a pathway to success for all of our learners. The next article I'd like to sum up for us is called Linguistic Human Rights in Education by Alma Flor Ada. I think this is an important article to discuss on the heels of what we just learned about the brain and how speaking Chinese can activate and grow the brain. The same can be true about learning multiple languages, um, becoming bilingual, trilingual. And I was shocked, and I think listeners, you'll be shocked as well, to learn how novel it is in education to support and cultivate and celebrate a child learning two languages and most importantly valuing the child's first language their home language there was a court case not too long ago in 1995 in texas where a judge ruled that a parent using the child's mother's tongue um, these are exact quotes from the article, was deemed child abuse, actual child abuse, and the mother was prohibited from speaking to her child in her native language. The child had to be spoken to in English. This was just 25 years ago. I was appalled to learn about this. I am um, such a component of cultivating and like I said celebrating a child's home language and to to me it seems obvious right two languages would be better than one why on earth would we ever want to shut down a child's native or home or first language in order to just have them know English it becomes then a hindrance there are so many examples in this article um, summarizes a few for us where parents and children were unable to communicate because the child went to school and was taught only English. And the parent spoke just the native language and they were not able to communicate. And again, listener, I ask you, how is that better? It's not. It seems obvious to all of us that that is worse. Um, not only is it worse, you know, social, emotionally, and as a family, it's also worse academically. The child, there's research that the child does better academically if they have both languages. Um, this article, um, um, Linguistic Human Rights for Education by Alma Florada, Ada, maybe, it actually goes as far, and I would agree 100%, that language is a gift, is a gift that leads to learning. 
Um, and if a child was able to know two languages, it's a double gift and three triple gift, right? And so what we need to do is we need to make sure that the children's na native languages or home languages are cultivated and celebrated. One way to do this, and this isn't in the article, but this is from um, Emily's experience, my experience here, is with dual lingual programs. And I know there's a lot of different ways to describe this. Um, people in different states use different words. This, um, but the concept is the same. So in what I call dual language, what it is is children are brought together as kindergartners and they, it's a classroom, so say it's um, 20 kids, 10 would be native English speakers and 10 would be native Spanish speakers. And this group of 20 is put together in this classroom and the class is taught Spanish. They start with Spanish and the teacher teaches in Spanish, words are said in Spanish to all the children. Um, and the ratio, I think it's probably been researched, I would assume, but it goes, um, each year, less Spanish is taught and more English is taught with the idea that when these kids get to the end of fifth grade, all of them, all 20 kids are bilingual in both English and Spanish. The, the ways in which this is better um, than, you know, shutting down a Spanish speaker and making them only learn English is it's like in so many, we couldn't even count. If you think about the culture, you know, the both Native and non-Native English speakers are learn, able to learn about each other's culture. They can um, communicate together. The families are able to communicate together. They become a cohort, a learning pod together. It is just such a magical experience. I wish that every um, person had the opportunity to participate in, in a dual language program. Um, this particular program I was telling you about was started at the school I worked at. Um, about, let's see, it was started in 2007, I believe. Um, so it's been going for quite some time, but even that, that wasn't that long ago, right? 2007. So we, I feel like are late to the party on this. And that to me, it seems so obvious that both languages would be so important. And I honestly don't know why it took till 2007 before my school that I worked at then incorporated this. But as we learned in our mindful moment, I am so grateful that they do, and I am so grateful for every group of students that is able to go through this dual language program together and become bilingual together. As you heard as we started our podcast today, today's episode is on neurodiversity, linguistic diversity, and cultural diversity. Um, with our previous two articles that we've summarized, we heard about the different neurodiversities, right? Sizes of the brains, linguistic diversity, you know, learning different languages, being multi or bilingual. And now I'd like to talk about cultural diversity. Um, that can take on many, many forms, including, you know, language, but also culture, experiences, a person's values, the perceptions, the, almost the lens that they view life through, and also the experiences they had um, in addition to or because of the color of their skin, their social emotional um, status, you know, um, whether they've had uh, experiences with trauma, um, you know, the nature of the family that they live in. Um, so many different aspects feed into a person's culture um, that it might even be hard or overwhelming to think, well, how can we be culturally responsive, right? How can we 
teach teachers to have culturally responsive teaching practices. And there are, luckily, has been a lot of research. And in preparation for today's podcast, I read Culturally Responsive Teaching, a guide to evidence-based practices for teaching all students equitably. Again, this is perfect. This is exactly what we want. We want to know how to teach so that all students can learn and all students have the opportunity for um, equal access to education. So one thing that we learned through this article was that right now there is not enough um, diversity within our educators. We have a very um, diverse group of students who are attending school with a very not diverse group of educators. And that is something that was probably going to be for another podcast. Um, But we really need to figure out what barriers we need to break down and what supports we need to put into place so that we can get educators with um, varying cultures. We cannot continue to um, ignore that because that's a very important aspect. In the short time that we have left today in our podcast, I would like to go over characteristics that have been identified, again, evidence-based, meaning they've been researched. So evidence-based characteristics that would prepare or that would create and cultivate culturally responsive teaching. Um, So when we think about this, we need to think about a teacher's social cultural concept conscience. So what that means is that teachers need to look within. Teachers need to examine their own biases and teachers need to confront attitudes that they have um, that could be creating negative experiences for diverse students that they would they would be teaching. So that's number one. Number two, attitude. Teachers need to make sure they are maintaining an attitude of respect and respecting cultural differences and respecting the immense need for them to create an inclusive classroom. Okay, number three, our evidence-based culturally responsive teaching practices is for teachers to um, commit to the skills needed to break down those barriers. Like we said, you know, as a society, we need to break down the barriers to create more diverse teachers. But as teachers, once you are a teacher, you need to break down those barriers so that within your school, you can start to become an agent of change. You can make sure that your school is becoming equitable um, beyond your classroom, right? You start in your classroom and then you you grow out. Um, We also need teachers to have constructivist views, um, which means they need to not only break down barriers, but they also need to build bridges. They need to scaffold. They need to help their students become learners, independent learners, become critical thinkers, problem solvers, and that comes about by using multiple perspectives and multiple approaches. Um, it sounds it sounds tricky, but I think with intentionality, teachers can fold that into their instruction. Um, relationships. So they they say number five the, is knowledge of a student's life, and the way that we do that is through genuine. Um, relationships with our students. That is a best practice for culturally responsive teaching, trauma-informed teaching, um, pretty much all teaching. So I think that if you can learn one thing from this podcast, make sure to build relationships with your students. Um, And the number six is 
to create culturally responsive teaching. Um, and that just is another way of saying we need an inclusive classroom environment where we're building on a child's strengths, especially their cultural strengths. Um, we're examining the curriculum to make sure that we can highlight um, successes from a variety of um, cultures, diverse backgrounds, and we need to do that, as I keep saying, with intention. Well, we're about out of time for today, so I just want to thank you listeners um, for hanging in there and listening to today's episode of Emotions with Emily. I hope you learned a lot about the cultural, linguistic, and neurodiversity um, and how that relates to the social-emotional learning of our students. Um, if you have any further questions or you would want more information, I implore you to read up on these articles that we covered um, the Linguistic Human Rights, the Cultural Wires for the Brain, and the Equity Assistance Center putting out the culturally responsive teaching. There's a lot of good research out there and a lot to learn, but I think if we work together, we can make a big difference um, in the way that we teach students and creating equitable learning environments for all our students. Thank you. Uh, have a good day. Um, I am grateful for you all, and I look forward to our next time together.